Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. One cool thing about doing a show about books by contemporary writers is that they are contemporaries. Like, if you have a question about Frankenstein, you can't go ask Mary Shelley. She's dead. But after our conversation about The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, we all had questions. And so we got the chance to ask her. I've been really excited to bring you this episode because, as you're about to hear, Angie Thomas is brilliant and cool and nice and everything you hope for in a young adult author. This week, she'll talk to us about what it's like to see your work adapted to the screen. With books and movies, I look at it as a parent trap situation. So, like, you got the book twin and the movie twin, and they're going to be raised <laughs> by two different parents. Book twin is going with my publisher. Movie twin is going with the film folks. Who am I? I'm like the grandparent that can give advice. <laughs> Angie Thomas was born, raised, and still lives in Jackson, Mississippi. She was a former teen rapper, and we will get into that. The Hate You Give is her debut novel, and it is a number one New York Times bestseller. Of course, she's still a working writer, and her second novel, On the Come Up, is on shelves now. Hi, everyone. This is Dana Schwartz. You're listening to Popcorn Book Club. I am joined, as always, by Karama Donkwa, Melissa Hunter, Tian Tran, the wonderful Jennifer Wright is out this week, and... We are joined by an incredibly special guest. I am so excited. The author of The Hate You Give, Angie Thomas, the, a book that spent, I believe, 174 weeks at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, but that number might be out of date. It could be even more. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a young adult phenomenon. We are so excited to have Yay! you. Thank you. Thank you so much Yay! for joining us. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, so I am going to be sort of moderating today and uh, we have some questions for you. Don't worry. It's not like we're not trying to get you or anything. <laughs> <laughs> we're friendly here. We promise. So, um, but I just wanted to start off. I was reading The Hate You Give while mm -hmm. simultaneously reading a book called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us by Hanif Abdul-Rakib. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm I was struck by a quote when I was reading about Chance the Rapper that made me want to ask you about it. So it says, what Chance does 
is what the best artists of color manage to do in this setting. Makes music facing his people while also leaving the door open for everyone else to try and work their way in. And I was curious if you felt like this spoke to your experience writing about Black culture and the neighborhood that you grew up in and having this book that spent so many weeks on the New York Times bestseller list that is being read widely by non-Black people. Do you feel like you do make art that faces your people while leaving the door open for other people to work their way in? Yeah, that's what I hope to do. Um, I remember very, very, very early in the process, like after I just signed with my publisher, me and my editor, we were having a conversation and she reminded me, she told me something from the beginning that like has stayed with me. And she was like, your job as a writer is not to explain things to white people. Mm. And this is a white woman, you know, this is a white woman (laughs) telling me this. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't realize how liberating just that was. But she was mm-hmm. like, no, that's not your job to do it. She was like, if there's something they don't understand, they can take the time to find out what it is. It's okay, you know? And and that has been kind of my mantra going forward as a writer. Um, I want to craft, in, in literature, um, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishops once said that books are mirrors, windows, or sliding glass doors. And... I want my books to first and foremost be mirrors for those Black kids who pick them up. I want them to see um, great views of themselves that aren't distorted and that show them who they are and help empower them. And if everybody else sees it as a window or a sliding glass door, great. But my priority always as a writer is to craft the mirror. And so like, as I've become more, I guess, comfortable in my craft, I've stopped code switching as much in my writing. Like I look at The Hate You Give and I saw glimpses of it there where I was like, "Eh, I kind of want to do a little more, but I'm scared that I'm going too far. But like now I'm on book three, Concrete Rose, the prequel to The Hate You Give. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I stopped code switching altogether in that book. (laughs) And I'm just like, it is so liberating. Like, you know, Maverick uses Finna in that book. And I yes. never had the guts to put Finna in The Hate You Give. But I'm like, I put Finna in there and they Finna find out what Finna means. So <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm urban dictionarying it right now. Wait, you seriously don't know what Finna means? Uh, that's not a judgment. I just am surprised. <laughs> I forget. I forget what white people know. Like, I yeah. not to put you on blast, Dana, but I remember that we were talking one time and we were talking about our friend Mike. And I said, wow, I had dinner with Mike and he didn't realize that black people put lotion on their whole bodies every day. And you said black people put lotion on their whole bodies every day. And every day? I, that's so much yes. time. Every single day after we shower, we cover our whole bodies in lotion because our skin would be dry and ashy. Other words, I'm concerned about white people's dry skin. Y'all not lotioning every day? I am too. I see so many crusty feet in the summertime that I'm like, what are y'all doing? I know. (laughs) Truly, those thong sandals and crusty feet. It's like, put some lotion and some socks on, please. I actually, I do have a question, Angie, about the the slang. Did you have pushback ever from, it sounds like your agent is super supportive, but did you ever have, you know, pushback from editors or even copy editors, like on that level of people trying to to fix grammar stuff 
No, I didn't, which surprised me again, because like, you know, after having that conversation with my my editor, I was like, okay, we'll see how far this mindset goes in the process. Mm -hmm. But like with my copy editor, um, every time she didn't understand a word or something like that, she would go to, you know, Urban Dictionary and she'd make note of it. It was hilarious. But, you know, too, like part of me when I was writing Hate You Give, I was like, do I want to put any slang words in? Because people are always like, that dates the book, that dates the book. But you look at mm-hmm. the classics. Let's look at classic novels. Nobody ever says that the stuff that's mentioned in those books dates those books. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So yeah, I'm like, Shakespeare's why not? still killing it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, why not speak to young people right now where they mm-hmm. are right now in this time we're in right now? Paint a picture of right now. So that, yeah, it may be dated in a few years, but hopefully the message is still powerful regardless of the words that may be used from time to time. So yeah, I was I was really lucky because I've heard some horror stories of pushback when it comes to yeah. um slang or African American vernacular, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Like I've been given the green light to just do whatever at this point. That's amazing. Uh, so you mentioned like the book may be dated in a few years. I will say it was written a few years ago or at least released a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it still feels fresh and it's still killing it in sales. And um, I don't feel like it's dated, at least thank not yet. You. Yeah, uh, you. you did start writing it when you were a college student in the, I won't say the year, it's on Wikipedia, people can look it up, but I'm not trying to age you on the <laughs> public. Thank you. But uh, prior to its release in 2017, and it was mm-hmm. a short story initially. So I wanted to know what was the process like adapting it from that short story into mm-hmm. a full-length young adult novel and what sort of stayed and how, how did you expand it or did you build around it? Mm-hmm. It was... Easier than I thought it would be. Um, It took me, it was, there were years between when I first wrote it as a short story and when I decided to write it as a novel. But the thing is, when I was writing it as a short story, it was part of my senior project um, in college in my creative writing program. And my problem was I kept making the short story too long. Mm. So like my professor, he's an author and like he pulled me aside one day and and you have to imagine this older white Southern man pulling me aside. And he's like, darling, it's supposed to be short. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, that's why it's called a short story, because I was adding all of these characters, all of these plot lines, all this stuff. And he was like, eh, it's supposed to be short. And I was like, yeah, but I want to do I want to. He was like. I get that, but you can turn it into a novel one day. But right now, I just need a short story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when the time came, you know, when I was like, okay, maybe I should go back to that um, and, and do that and turn it into a novel. It was kind of easy because I had all those things and those storyline ideas that I wanted to include and all those characters that I wanted mm-hmm. to include that I couldn't before. And so now I was given that opportunity to do that. So the main thing was... um making sure that the core message of the book remained the same. And for me, that is that young Black people have voices and and that they matter. And and that's what it was for me when it was a short story. And that's what I wanted to keep in the novel form. So it wasn't too hard because I, I, again, I was limiting myself when I was writing it as a short story. Um, so in, in that sense, I was lucky that I had a whole lot of ideas to work with. 
Can mm-hmm. I ask what the focus of the short story was? Yes. The- yeah, yeah. The short story, it was actually, I did like four different short stories to make up the senior project. So it was like one was from Khalil's perspective. Mm. One was from Khalil's little brother's perspective. One was mm. from Star's perspective. And one was from a perspective of another little girl in the neighborhood who was friends with Khalil's little brother. And so mm. I wanted to show how this world and how this 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 act of violence affected all of them in some kind of way. You know, for for Khalil's little brother, what does the neighborhood looked like through his eyes, you know, mm-hmm. and I had to go back to when I was a little kid and what and and the fact that I didn't realize my neighborhood was as dangerous as it was. Mm-hmm. So like my imagination saved me in a lot of ways. So like I, you know, I for me, I pictured the drug addicts as dragons in the neighborhood. And I, I pictured, you know, I said that the drug house that we were supposed to, you know, avoid that was like the dragon layer. And I had this whole thing in my head. So I pulled that into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the but the main thing was showing at that point even was the idea that these kids who were in this community that's so often ridden off, um, they have value, they have beauty, they have stories that deserve to be told. You know, I kind of, even at that point, I pulled on that concept of roses growing in concrete. That's what I wanted that neighborhood to represent. I wanted Garden Heights to be the concrete, and we're talking about the roses, and I wanted to show the beauty of the roses. So that was the theme that was in the senior project and in those short stories that has now found its way into my books. So here I am, all these years later, still doing a college school project. (laughs) If you have a good idea, take it and run with it. And I would say that a lot of people think it's a good idea. Uh, Have you Mm -hmm. spoken to the professor who said that it needs to be a short story since then? Oh, yeah, I have. I have. I've spoken to him. He's come to all of my signings in Jackson. And he's like, so when am I getting the check? And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) you know. You can have a free copy of the book. (laughs) He's he's joking. He's always joking when he says it. But I'm like, yeah, nah. Not a joke. I don't think. <laughs> That's so funny. So from turning it from a short story into a novel, mm-hmm. was Star's perspective immediately the first one that you went to in terms of wanting to grow out this story? Yeah, yeah. That was like, for me, she was always the main character in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think part of it was because, maybe because I put some of my own experience in that character, my own viewpoint um, in that character, you know, she's navigating these two worlds. And there I literally was at that time in college navigating two worlds. I went to a mostly white upper class private Christian school in mm. conservative Mississippi. I, exactly. I just you got me beat. Oh, <laughs> oh, my. That, com- that combination of words is sent to <laughs> down my spine. Yeah, it feels like a Mad Lib of doom. Like, yes. Just, yes, yes, that was my that was my college. And and I was the only black student in my creative writing program. I was the first black student to graduate from the creative writing program. Wow. And so, you know, being the only black person, I had all those experiences. Like when they're talking about slavery in class, people looking at me look like at I you. was there. Yep, looking yeah, at like- you. I had that experience in high school when we were reading Huck Finn because my white teacher would say the N-word when she was reading it. 
And every oh. time she said it, every student in class turned and looked at mm-hmm. either me or the other black girl in class. And we always sat on opposite ends. So it was funny. You could see their heads whipping back and forth. <laughs> 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 and are they looking at you like, I'm so sorry? Or are they no. looking at you like, what are you? What What's do you your think? reaction? They yeah. Yeah. Do, you think, the reaction. do you think this is bad? Like, What's she going to do? What's she going to do? <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's a universal experience for black people in primarily white institutions having that moment where when blackness comes up in a discussion in a white space, what is this one black person's reaction going to be? So I feel that. Ms. Thomas. I oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. That was like that was me. (laughs) Angie, when it came to then turning the book into the movie, which was then such a, so much attention, I feel like was on you and the process. Well, I mean, what Mm -hmm. was that like? I feel like Mm -hmm. also I saw people on Twitter thinking that you were personally casting it. That was, that was (laughs) wild. I don't think like there's so many misconceptions about the film process with books. And it's like, you know, everybody, thinks they know, uh, thinks they're an expert and they <laughs> and they really have no idea just how everything happened or anything. Like the, for me, the movie process started really early. Like The Hate You Give, I signed with my agent and I tweeted him in June, 2015. <laughs> he signed me as a client like in August. We went on submission November and the book was sold in November. And by December of 2015, I was on phone calls with Hollywood producers and studios because like, oh my God. there was all this buzz about the book from publishing because it was this big 13 house auction and everybody was talking about that. And so it got into Hollywood and like, yeah, December, I say December 2015, I had my first phone conversation with George Tillman Jr., who ended up being the director. Mm-hmm. Um and like, th- that's early, you know, that's that's early. I mean, I just I hadn't even signed the contract yet for the book. That's how early we're talking when oh, I talk wow. to George. January 2016, Amanda Stenberg was given a copy. Again, I hadn't even signed a contract for the book yet. <laughs> I was still waiting on the paperwork. They yeah. were still getting all the negotiations done, you know, um, with that. And like Amanda read it and was like, I love this. Star is me in so many ways. I'd love to be attached to play this character. And Mm so we were talking about bam, bam, bam. Like within a few months, I go from working on something by myself to I got a publisher and now I got a film studio, a director and an actress attached. Wow. The wildest thing in my life. It's so cool. (laughs) You're listening to Popcorn Book Club from iHeartRadio, and we'll be back right after the break. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. 
Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So we're back with Popcorn Book Club from iHeartRadio. What was it like handing over the book to a screenwriter? I know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you've created such a rich world in your book Mm -hmm. and this tapestry of characters. And obviously it's a, a script is so different. So what was your relationship? I know she has since passed, but um, mm-hmm. with the screenwriter and that process of handing over this baby, you know? Yeah, that was that was a scary process. I have to admit, because, you know, with with books and movies, I look at it as a parent trap situation. And you got like, <laughs> you know, these two kids. So like you got the book twin and the movie twin and they're going to be raised <laughs> by two different parents. Book twin is going with my publisher. Movie twin is going with the film folks. Who am I? I'm like the grandparent. That you, <laughs> you know, you're the so, British grandfather. <laughs> yes, he's the best one. <laughs> exactly, I'm the British grandfather, and so <laughs> I, you know, I had to trust them in that process and understand the kids are gonna look different. They're fraternal twins, not identical. They're gonna look different, mm-hmm. but the genetics are the same. The one thing I will say about Audrey was, um, she. From the very beginning, she involved me in the process. Like my first trip on an airplane, I'd never flown in my life. My first trip on an airplane was in 2016 when I flew out to Los Angeles to meet her and George and all the people at Fox 2000. And I sat down with Audrey and George for like an entire day at a restaurant talking about every single character, every single plot line in the book. 
Um, you know, yeah. now I will say, and, and you know, people probably going to look at me weird or come at me for saying this, and this is no disrespect to the dead, but I will say looking back on it, part of me still wishes that a black woman had been involved as a screenwriter from the beginning. We did have a mm-hmm. black woman come on later. Um, Tina Mabry, she came on later and she reworked some stuff in the script. Um, cause the thing about Audrey was God rest her soul, but like she had never watched the fresh, fresh Prince. <laughs> Oh, and so I'm like, okay. So you Sorry. know, we got we got some. Now I will say she was willing to learn, blah blah blah. But the way you know things with Hollywood and all that work out at that time, I'm still learning as I go. All right, yeah, I will say that I'm still learning as I go. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning the process, how things work. So I wish I could have been a little more vocal at that time and said, let's get a black woman in from the get go. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, I do wish that. Yeah. Now that's. The thing about that is I learned from that because here I am now, second book on the come up. We have black woman screenwriter Kay Oyagun from This Is Us. Um, We have a black woman studio head, Amber Raspberry at Paramount, who's overseeing the project. You have me as a producer this time, not just in name, but I'm actually a producer, actually working on it this time. And I will say, I can't say who yet, um, but we will have a black woman director as well. So, That's so I have a guess, but I'm not going <laughs> to Yes, I also have a guess. guess. Will you like nod for us? I, I can't do that. Just put it in Morse code. I, blink it in Morse code in your eyes. <laughs> we love we love Intel. <laughs> I, I, I may let y'all know after the okay. <laughs> We won't tell anybody. I, it can't be recorded because I don't no, want no, any no. evidence no. that I did it. But no. no, of course you did. No. You know what? Don't even tell us. Yeah, we will not. Not, yeah, okay. we will not ask at all. Yeah. <laughs> not even a second. Yeah, no, no. So no, I, I you know, I will say like I was a baby in the early in that yeah, first film process. I was okay. still learning. I was starry eyed, surprised that anybody wanted to make something out of my book. But now I'm like, okay, I know a little more. Mm-hmm. I got a little more say so. I got a little more power. And I was I told Amber Raspberry at Paramount, I was like, look. I know that I have to pick my battles, but this is one hill I want to die. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to die on. And that's mm-hmm. I want a black woman director. And that was like originally George was going to direct it. And George is my big brother. I love him. But mm-hmm. something came up, scheduling conflict. So now he can't do it. I was like, OK, so since George can't do it, here's the hill I'm willing to die on. I want a black woman yeah, director. Yeah. So I got I it. feel like that's a good <laughs> hill. That's a solid yeah, that's hill. A great because hill. We were going to ask specifically how it felt to mm-hmm. have a white screenwriter. And I'm so glad that you brought it up and it didn't feel like mm-hmm. we were like attacking anybody. Mm-hmm. And again, not to speak ill of the dead, but it oh. is a specific experience. Mm-hmm. And not having seen The Fresh Prince is something that I can't even imagine. Um, and yeah. not white, to like, white yeah, people yeah, watch the Fresh Prince also. No, I know. I, I know. I know white people. Chris watches the Fresh Prince. But you had mentioned Amandla Stenberg mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. they were very controversially, not, uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. controversial for the casting, but there was a mm-hmm. sort of firestorm after they were cast in The Hunger Games. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's interesting because there was a newspaper article about you and about your book and it has this beautiful picture of you on it. Oh, you did a print Times. Mm. Yes. Yes. My mom has a printer. Yes. I'm living large. <laughs> and in this article, 
by Adriana Ramirez, they talk about how your book could be to some considered a sort of dystopic book in the same realm as the Hunger Games and uh, mm-hmm. and Maze Runner and all these books that have these huge film adaptations that the kids are very into, but mm-hmm. it just happens to be set in reality. How mm-hmm. do you feel about that classification and characterization? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I will go back to the casting thing because I don't mind talking about that, too. You know, there was controversy with our film and Amanda being cast as star because, you know, the cover of the book shows a dark skinned girl. And here's Amanda biracial. And we're talking about colorism. Colorism is real in Hollywood. I will not say it's not real. Let me put Mm -hmm. that out there. But Mm -hmm. I will say that in this instance, Amanda was cast before the cover was made. (laughs) And it goes back to that whole thing of book baby versus movie baby. Mm-hmm. So it was like they acted it's sometimes as if it was two different things. So, you know, yeah. that's just that. I will say mm-hmm. that. But no, colorism is real in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will point, I want to put this out there too. I am hoping for a darker skinned black girl to play Brianna. All right. Now, <laughs> <laughs> now, as far as that goes, you know, hearing that when I read that article, well, I didn't read the article because I rarely read articles about me. My mama is wise. It. Very that smart. So wise. My, my, my mama reads them, which is worse. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no, but like her, we have a whole lot of family out in LA. So one of her cousins called her. She was like, girl, Angie's in the LA Times. Let me send you this article. And so my mom was reading. And when I heard that part, you know, I get it, but it's also heartbreaking because that's kind of insinuating that black kids live in an entirely different world mm-hmm. than the rest of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's honestly, in some ways, the reality, like, in the past few weeks, as we've had in months, as we've had these conversations about racism here in America and police brutality and all of these things, I'm starting to realize that a majority of white people have been living in an entirely different country than me. Because it's like, y'all don't notice this stuff. Y'all mm-hmm. hadn't been, y'all don't realize this stuff. Like, my folks had the conversation with me as a young kid in the 90s about what to do if I'm stopped by a cop and you're like oh this is new no it's not you know Mm -hmm. so in a lot of ways young black people in this country have been living in a dystopian world while everybody else has been living in what they feel is if a utopia you know Mm -hmm. and and we don't talk about the fact that there are multiple types of America (laughs) <laughs> you know, and 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 I, I'm at the point I don't want equality. I want equity. Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. equity mm-hmm. for my young people, you know. So, yeah, I, 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 I think if you're not used to knowing these things, if these things are brand new to you, absolutely. The hate you give feels like a dystopia. But for a lot of young people, it's just their reality. It's the America that they know, the America that they've been given. And and that's. That's that's a problem. That's an absolute mm-hmm. problem. So yeah, it it broke my heart, but I realized, yep, that's pretty right on the money. <laughs> Was there something sort of bittersweet? I mean, mm-hmm. not even sweet, but like this summer, I feel like was such a reckoning for so much of America to realize mm-hmm. it, to to be talking about Black Lives Matter publicly and and have it become sort of a massive movement with mainstream support, like among like suburban, you know, like the, the polls among like suburban people now, mm-hmm. it was that sort of bittersweet being like, you wrote this book in 2017. Like, yeah. why are we only talking about this now? Yeah, it, it was, you know, I, you know, I, I'll admit like ever since 
Mr. Floyd lost his life and Breonna Taylor lost her life and Ahmaud Arbery lost his life. People have been turning to my book more, mm-hmm. which is it hurts, you know, like my my sales one week were just through the roof. And yay, people want to read and learn more. But here we are, you know, we've been yelling Black Lives Matter for years now. And some of y'all are just starting to understand that it's not an attack on you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, OK, now we got the basics out of the way. Can we get into more of this? You know, like. It's it's just it's just getting to the point where it feels like that phrase is starting to not be as taboo. And for the longest, it felt so taboo. Like yeah. I'm saying Black Lives Matter, I'm making a political statement. No, I'm literally telling you my life matters. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, why does that have to be a political statement? So it's bittersweet. But then at the same time, it feels like, all right, that's the that's the light work. What's next? You know, yeah, yeah it's cool that New York you know, that the mayor wanted to paint Black Lives Matter in front of uh, the uh, orange man's tower. Great. Mm-hmm. But all right. So what are you doing about police brutality in New York? Mm-hmm. You and know? stop and frisk and all of this yeah. stuff that has set so many people in New York specifically that are black and brown people back for years and years and years. Exactly. And- yeah, it's a lot of very lovely lip service, I feel like. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, a lot of lip service. You know, I'm here in Mississippi and they just finally changed the flag. Yeah. We wanted to talk <laughs> to you about, that. about that. You are from Mississippi. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so Mississippi, for those of you who do not know, has the Bars and Stars as part of its state flag. Mm-hmm. And yeah. well, I said Bars and Stars specifically because there are several different Confederate flags and the Bars and Stars is not one of the mm-hmm. like main ones. I just think it's funny that people have really held on to this one and they're like, this is the one that is the most racist. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But Mississippi has the Bars and Stars as part of its state flag and they are now finally asking, should we remove this? I mean, there have been people who have been asking for a long time, hey, why does this have to be part of our state flag? Mm -hmm. But now with everything Mm -hmm. going on in the country and eyes on them and Confederate flags being banned in like NASCAR, which was just the most shocking reveal of 2020 that NASCAR (laughs) was going to be like the most progressive (laughs) in action organization out of everything. And we all just learned about Bubba Wallace and we're all here to support him through everything he does forever. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) I think that it, how do you feel as a Mississippian uh, with this Mm -hmm. flag and having grown up with this flag, seeing it finally addressed, but also Mm -hmm. wondering why nobody was listening to the voices beforehand calling Mm -hmm. for it to be removed. You know, the, The thing about Mississippi, and it's something that I've realized now as an adult, is that I grew up not realizing that some some things were as bad as they are. It's not Mm -hmm. until you go other places or you meet people who aren't from here that you realize, oh, that's oh, wow. Yeah. You know, like the shock of it hit you like with the flag. You know, I remember when they first did the vote back in 2001, um, I was like. 11, 12 years old. And I remember the conversations around it. Before that, I didn't realize the flag was a bad thing. I knew it was bad. I knew the Confederate stuff was bad. I knew all that was bad. I knew it was, you know, associated with slavery and et cetera. But it wasn't until people started pointing out how bad it was that I realized not one, not just that it was bad, but two, that it can be changed. 
because it was normal to me. It was normal to me that my state had a flag that told me I was not as equal as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that was the mindset I had as a kid thinking, you know, this state has told me that I don't have as much value as its white citizens. And I grew to accept that. That's how a lot of young people here have felt. And it's not OK. Mm-hmm. So when you know, when the conversations have been ramping up about the flag, my entire adult life, there have been fights against that flag and and nobody wanted to listen. Politicians didn't want to listen. Even our newest governor, when he took office, he was like, I'm not going to change it. Now, here's the thing. And I'm glad it's changing. Yay. But I also mm-hmm. recognize that it did not come down to black or white. It was about green. <laughs> Mm, It was totally about green. When you have somebody pointed it out on Twitter, they were like, you know, another Mississippian was like, of course, the government here finally changed the flag. They had the three main staples of Southern living that came at them. That is college football, the Baptist and Walmart. Like. Oh, the Holy Trinity. <laughs> the Holy wow. Trinity right there. <laughs> like, you know, you have these three coming at them saying, we're not going to bring things there. Mm-hmm. We're going to stop doing this there. It became about money. And then it just came out within the past week that Google is now building one of their first um, customer service centers in Mississippi within the next few years. Oh, I know exactly why y'all changed the flag. Yeah. Google probably threatened to not come mm-hmm. here. So yep. it came down to green. And that's, and, I feel like, what's happening with the Washington football team right now. Yes. FedEx is strong-arming them, and it's like it should be changed. But mm-hmm. I feel, personally, for me, I want that change to also come from a place of, oh, this is bad, not just, yes. oh, I will face... irreparable consequences if I don't do this thing that people are forcing me to do. And like with Rhode Island, the state of Rhode Island, I don't know if y'all heard, but the full name of the state of Rhode Island (laughs) is the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. And they first voted to change that when I was a college student in Rhode Island. And that's when I found out, I was like, oh, I don't like that at all. Um, (laughs) And yeah, yeah. And they are finally changing it. But the reason the vote didn't go through in 2010 when I was uh, a college student was because of money. It was because they didn't want to pay to change all of the official stuff. And they were like, well, who really cares? And it's like, well, I care. And I'm not Mm -hmm. planning. I was not planning on being a permanent resident of the state of Rhode Island. But if people feel unsafe or unwelcome, I feel like that matters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing here with the flag is now all of these politicians are saying what the right things they're saying, what they should have been saying all along of. Yeah, it promotes division. We need a flag that unifies. I'm like, oh, so you knew that the whole time you've been Mm -hmm. pushing back on changing it. You knew this. You knew this. It's just now it took money coming into the fold, you know, so it's it's going to be interesting to see how this goes and how it turns out. Um, we get to vote in November on a new state flag design, which will be fascinating. Um, but, you know, there are people who are spitfire mad, as we say, because they didn't get to vote on whether we keep that original flag or not. So let them be mad. Yeah. I'm saying let them be mad. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want if there was no pandemic right now, I would have held a flag burning party. <laughs> like I would have burned that sucker down several times <laughs> in my yard. Like, 
it would have been lit, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Changing the subject slightly back to the book, I was Mm -hmm. curious, obviously as a a YA novel, you know, you can't get into like the full complexity of certain issues. And for many readers, you know, it is a a first exposure to like that sort of firsthand trauma. But -hmm. I was curious about um, the character of Carlos and making Mm -hmm. him a cop. And your decision process in making him a cop and, and mm-hmm. any pushback or thoughts that you have on that. Because especially mm-hmm. now, there's this uh, idea going around that, uh, you know, the institution of policing is so fundamentally broken that you can't change it from within yeah. the system. And I was just interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, I will say, you know, my my perspective on it has evolved over time. You know, we're all learning. We're all growing. Now, when I wrote the character Carlos originally, I wrote him um, with my own family members in mind who are police officers. When I first got to talk about what to do if I'm ever stopped by a cop, it was from my cousin who was a cop. Because wow. um, he knew some of his fellow officers tended to abuse their power. So with the character Carlos, I wanted to show a black cop and some of what they deal with, because a lot of them will tell you, you know, well, inside of the uniform, I'm seen as a sellout outside of the uniform. I'm still a suspect. You know, mm-hmm. I remember reading recently a Twitter thread of a black police officer who was a- investigating a case outside at night with a flashlight going around somebody's backyard with a flashlight trying to find bullet shells or something like that. And 911 got a call of a suspicious black man in a backyard <laughs> with a flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I, We're I dispatching to- <laughs> officers right now. They're already there. <laughs> they're, they're, they're already there. So like through that character, I wanted to address that, but I also wanted to show an officer who holds his fellow officers accountable. Because, you know, at that point for me, that was one of the biggest things I wanted. Now... As I've learned more and, you know, and, and 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 read more, researched more, you know, I'm I'm all about, you know, abolishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a, I, I believe we can have a police free world is possible. Um, I'm all about, you know, putting at least starting out with defunding the police and putting mm-hmm. those funds into other things that benefit communities such as housing, social services, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, I I think, too, with the character movie wise, you know, there were a lot of conversations about the character in the movie and specifically the conversation he has with Star, um, where he's, you know, talking about what goes through an officer's mind and people like, oh, that that, you know, that was you guys explaining cops again. Like, we need that perspective again. Now, for me, I will say for me, I saw it as him coming to recognize his own internal bias, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, him realizing, yeah, if it was a black person, I've I've been so conditioned that even as a black man, I would probably shoot first, which is sad, but that's so true. I mean, let's look at Atlanta for a second. Most of the Atlanta police department is black and they're still dealing with police brutality because we're talking about a root issue, Mm -hmm. uh, an internal bias that's just been, that has poisoned this entire system. So if you're talking about something at the root, you got to chop it down. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So my my perspective has definitely changed. But that character was one that for me at the time, I just wanted to show this what a black cop deals with in the sense of being a suspect and a sellout. But also him coming to recognize his fellow officers need to be held accountable. And to a degree in the book, we see him come to realize that 
there's a systemic problem here. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people tell me, oh, Carlos was an Uncle Tom. Look, y'all, Carlos got to grow, too. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like there was a lot of growth for Carlos in the book that I did miss in the movie, though I did enjoy Mm -hmm. seeing Academy Award winner Common in the film. I only refer (laughs) to him as Academy Award winner Common. (laughs) But I do think it's important and people need to recognize that, like, he's a character and you write characters and everything that a character says in your book is not necessarily something that you, Angie Thomas, as a human being, believes, like... There are just right. characters that exist. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah you yeah, get to yeah. have your own flaws different from your characters. Well, and it <laughs> does feel like usually the cop that we see that has an arc regarding racism is a white cop. So it is, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a different perspective. And I appreciated that it was all through the perspective of Star in mm-hmm. the end. Thank you. Thank you. This is Popcorn Book Club. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. (gasps) Good one, dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Okay, we're back with Popcorn Book Club. I did want to talk about Carlos again really quickly, um, just because uh, 
as I was reading the book, I didn't look at the mm-hmm. casting for the film outside of before I finished the book. I knew mm-hmm. that Amanda was playing Star, obviously. But uh, I want to bring it back to colorism and talk about mm-hmm. how, you know, in the Black community, we have light-skinned people, we have dark-skinned people. Sometimes you, you see somebody, you're like, oh, she act real light-skinned. Um, and, <laughs> and it's funny, because as I was reading it, I was like, I feel like Lisa and Carlos are light-skinned. And did you have mm-hmm. any sort of... Hmm decision process in who you were making the light-skinned characters and who you were making the dark-skinned characters. Because when I saw it and I saw that Common was playing mm-hmm. Uncle Carlos, I was like, that works for me. I understand that choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny too, because yeah, in the book, it's mentioned that uh, Carlos and Lisa, their mom, refers to them as high yellow. I did, yeah. I, I thought yeah, that before yeah. I read it and I was like, yeah, nope. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, there. I, I tried not to overthink it too much, but there were times where, you know, I thought about the with Lisa and Carlos, especially, um, and and their upbringing and and how they're perceived in the neighborhood, and but also with Carlos, how he perceives the neighborhood as a light skinned person. I'm gonna say sometimes light skinned folks you know, uh, uh, can, can be a little, how should I put it? With Carlos, specifically with this character, we see he's got light-skinned privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sometimes people just be acting light-skinned. Like, exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. And that's like with Carlos, I, I definitely thought of him as one of these light-skinned brothers who, you know, he's like, well, if you just talk a certain way, if you present yourself a certain way, it'll be okay. Not recognizing, bruh. You at times get privileged because you're not seen in the same way that Maverick would be seen because mm-hmm. Maverick is mm-hmm. darker skin. And when he enters spaces, he's already got a little more against him than you will because you are light skinned brother. You mm-hmm. know, so mm-hmm. I definitely thought of that when I was especially with those two characters yeah. when yes. I was crafting them, because, you know, Carlos, Carlos still at, even in the book, he doesn't recognize that he doesn't recognize that he's not seen as a threat nearly mm-hmm. as much as Maverick. And, you know, he's the kind of character who'd be like, well, if he wasn't in the gang or this, but no, sir, it's more to it than just that. Mm-hmm. So I definitely thought of that when I was crafting those two. One, yeah. one change uh, between the movie and the book that I was curious about, some changes like Devontae are like, the, you just can't fit everything into yeah. a film. There's just, I you know, I Devontae questions all the time. Yeah. People <laughs> so mad at me that Devontae wasn't in the movie. I'm like, y'all, it's okay. Devontae and Nana are in the book living their best lives. Yeah. <laughs> but one change I was curious about is at the end mm-hmm. of the film, they decided to stay in Garden Heights where the book they leave. Mm-hmm. Was who, what was that decision process like? Mm-hmm. You know, that one, it was interesting how that came about. Cause in the movie, I will say like in the movie, originally they were going to move. Yeah. Um, they were going to move in the movie originally. Um, and what happened as we say, what had happened was, um, they started doing screenings of the film with test mm-hmm. audiences. And one thing that test audiences were saying was we've become so attached to the neighborhood and it uh, seems as if they're mm-hmm. so attached, it doesn't make sense that they leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, now, because the, the big difference with the book and the movie is it's a little more focused on in the book at times. You know, for Lisa and Maverick, that's kind of 
their storyline. She wants yeah. to leave. He wants to stay. And he has to come to the realization that where you live does not define who you are. Mm-hmm. All right. So we don't see it as much in the movie. Like there's a scene in the movie where Lisa and Maverick are like in the bedroom and it's mentioned and they kind of go in and Lisa tell tells him, you know, where you live does not define who you are. And mm-hmm. but and yeah, that conversation happens, but it's not still as focused on as it is in the book. So I guess yeah. the audiences didn't um, weren't as convinced about it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, for me, that was my own struggle. <laughs> you know, I, I could I could see it going either way with them in the book. But like that was my own struggle once I started, you know, making getting financially secure as an author. It was like, do I stay in my neighborhood or do I leave? Yeah. You know, and, and that was, I think, a lot of black people who, if you've ever lived in a neighborhood like Garden Heights and you get the opportunity to leave, you may deal with that struggle as well. So that was definitely my own. But, um, yeah, it, it worked. I think it worked well in the book and the decision that was made in mm-hmm. the movie worked as well for it. I, yeah, I definitely see that. And I feel like in the book, we do get this fear that Maverick has of being seen as like uppity or sadiddy for leaving. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't translate on screen in the narrative that was created in the screen. Like you said, they're fraternal twins. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, I see how, now that you've said test audiences were one of the major factors, I definitely see how that could be a factor. Sort of in relation to that, you ultimately did not leave Garden Heights on the come up and now uh, Concrete Rose, you're staying in Garden Heights. And I find that so interesting um, that you're creating such a such a tapestry there of all these characters. Did you know that when you were finishing the um, when you were finishing The Hate You Give that you wanted to return to Garden Heights? And I know it's not a real place, but it's based on where you grew up. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I did know that I would at least go back for one more book. I'm going to tell y'all something, a little insider info. At the end of, like, The Hate You Give, um, during the riots and everything, there's a point where Star, Seven, Chris, and Devante hop into a truck with this guy, and there's a girl (laughs) in the back whose name is Bree. Originally, that was going to be Bree from On the Come Up. But I ended up changing some stuff. So now that ain't that Brie, it's another Brie because there can be two black girls named Brie in the same (laughs) 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 But like, I knew I was going to go back to the neighborhood. I knew my second book was going to be about hip hop because Mm -hmm. I was like, what do you do after this? You know, what do you do in a Garden Heights after this? And I thought a lot about hip hop and how it started out. You know, you're talking about Mm -hmm. an art form that started in the Bronx during the Bronx burnings, when all of these buildings were being destroyed and young people were facing all of these hardships in the Bronx. And somehow, some way from the ashes of that, they created an art form that is now the biggest selling music genre in the world. You know, it, it crosses color lines, it crosses languages, hip hop started by teenagers in a basement, you know, during all of that. And I was like, how do young, how would young people in a neighborhood like that find their voices after something like that or find some hope. And I wanted to use hip hop as um, a tool for that. So I knew I wanted to go back. Then like, honestly, I had no intention of writing any more books about the Carters or anything after The Hate You Give. It was like, while I was on set of the movie, talking to Russell Hornsby, who did a phenomenal job as Maverick. Oh my gosh. And was freaking robbed of awards. I'm just gonna Mm -hmm. say that. (laughs) 
I I second that. No, he was yeah. incredible. And, you know, we didn't talk about him much in our previous episode. So I'm glad you brought him up because he was an incredible mm-hmm. maverick. He was just, he embodied that role oh, in yes. a way that was phenomenal. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Please continue. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. You're good. No, I could talk about Russell Hornsby all day. Like, he, as maverick, like, he just, he brought it. That role, he, he, he blessed us all with that um you know but talking to him while he was becoming the character and he's asking me questions about the character but also he's transforming into the character this is what i'm this is one thing that people don't know about like russell when he did maverick like russell had a whole walk for maverick like Mm. he walked different when he was maverick and like he he talked different when he was maverick his whole persona changed like when he walked on set it was like that's not Russell that's Maverick that's the kind of actor he is and so seeing him as the character and talking to him and him asking me questions about the character and stuff like that it made me a little more take a little closer look at the character myself and go huh let me figure out that let me see if I can answer that so you know then going on tour and being around people asking me all the time about him that character more than any other character. I got to say, like, grown women love them some Maverick. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's also like a dream husband. Yeah. Like, that relationship between so Maverick and Lisa. So <laughs> and, like, <laughs> such a tender dad, too. Uh, it's like, ugh. Yeah, see, yeah. y'all are doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, He's like, a good dad. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, you know, with the kids, they're all like Khalil, seven, blah, blah, blah. But the grown women, they're like, oh, my God, Maverick. <laughs> Ooh, I need me a Maverick. Like, Maverick got a fan club. And so I was like, I want to explore that character more. And that's when I, I made the decision, like, after the film, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back one more time to Garden Heights and explore Maverick and his story as a teenager and see how he became the person that we know in The Hate You Give. So mm-hmm. this will probably be my last book in Garden Heights. Okay. Um, my fourth book is going to be set in Mississippi, which is... <laughs> <laughs> lot to write about. Oh, yeah, I got a whole lot to write about here. I'm like, after this book, they're going to put me out. Uh, (laughs) They're going to make you governor. That's the goal. (laughs) Can I ask quickly, Angie, was there ever a moment that you had, you thought about putting Garden Heights as a real, like, city? Or was it always, did you always want it to be fictional so that it could be more universal in the way that you approached that story? You know, there was a time where I was like, I should probably put this somewhere. But the problem was, one, I wasn't fond of putting it in Jackson. And that was just because I I hated my state at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, have, I have such a rocky relationship with my hometown, my home state. And I was like, I'm not putting it there. I'm not giving them that. I'm not giving them that. <laughs> so like, I was like, no, I, I should put it in Atlanta, even though I've never been to Atlanta. <laughs> about Atlanta so like eventually I was like you know what no just don't give it a a certain city or state because I felt like you know I wanted to put show that this could be anywhere Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and and the beauty of it is I go different places and people like this is Chicago isn't it or or, this is south this is uh south LA isn't it this is Atlanta (laughs) isn't it and, you know, Mississippi folks, this is Jackson, right? You know, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it became an easy decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have been billed as a 
former teen rapper, is there a place where we can listen to your music? No. <laughs> I had my mom destroy all of the mixtapes. I think she's got like one that she's holding this blackmail against me. Oh, smart mom. I took adorable. everything down. I was not it. I was not it at all. Uh-uh. No. <laughs> but speaking of your mom, I know that um, in this book, there is a lot of parental sort of counter education or a supplemental mm-hmm. education that happens about the Black Panthers and about Black history. And mm-hmm. uh, I know that I got some of that. I know my mom was doing my hair one time, which, as you know, takes many hours. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I want to watch Anastasia. And she said, OK, can I watch a movie first and then we'll watch Anastasia after? And I said, oh, OK, that seems fair. I'm I'm an I'm a reasonable person. And she made me watch all of Roots, the original miniseries, in one sitting oh, while she Lord. was doing my hair. Yeah. <laughs> just one movie. Just one movie. <laughs> Technically, <laughs> uh, Technically she was right. She led you. <laughs> but, you know, I'm glad she did it because I feel like I was really resistant to mm-hmm. any additional education. I'm like, oh, why do I need to know this? Why do I need a children's book about Jesse Owens? Or why do I need a children's book about Charles Drew? Uh, why can't I read the same books mm-hmm. as all of my friends? So I just wanted to ask you about the um, the process in terms of deciding to show that and how you showed that and how you brought in mm-hmm. the Nation of Islam briefly and the Black Panthers and Huey P. Newton and all of that. Yeah, you know, it was important because those things are not discussed enough in schools. And I remember as I was working on The Hate You Give, I had this thought. I was like, what if this ends up being required reading in some school? Oh, let's throw in some history stuff so they can know yeah. the real deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like with the yeah. Black Panthers, there's so many misconceptions. Like young people don't know that the reason they have free breakfast school lunches at school, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Black Panthers. You know, mm-hmm. you know they've been villainized, and and then Dr. King has been sanitized. So you know, we we don't we don't our our kids are not being equipped enough through the history books. Um, they're, they're not being given the real deal. And I was like, okay, you know, if I'm keeping it real in this book, I want that. And, and then crafting Maverick back to Maverick, you know, I was like, who is this guy? He would be into that stuff. That's him. You know, that's, that's Mm -hmm. his MO in a lot of ways. That's, that's where, that's his, um, his avenue of wokeness, you know, Mm -hmm. radical Mm -hmm. blackness. And so I wanted to pull that in, but I wanted to show too, that there are so many different um, there have been so many different movements and movements that have looked different ways within just the black community alone. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you had the civil rights movement, but you also had the black power movement. You had all of these different things. These are not new battles that we've been fighting. You know, when the Black Panthers pinned the 10 point program, they were saying we want an end to police brutality back then. We're still mm-hmm. asking for it now. So I wanted to show young people this is not new. We've been fighting. We're going to keep fighting. So it was definitely important to include all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm working now on fifth book as well, which is like middle grade fantasy. And I'm pulling black history into that in so wow. many different ways. Yeah. I'm like, the kids are going to learn oh something. Today. <laughs> I got a whole reading list for my niece now. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, Dana, I know you had a question. 
Oh, yeah. Well, now I'm just saying, like, thank God that you have to give every Haley in the world every copy of your book. Ooh. Don't <laughs> yeah. even talk Haley. to me about Haley. I literally Ooh. talk about Haley anymore. I can tell you, Haley is based on a real person. I was going to ask oh. you. <laughs> name names. Does she know? Does she know? Okay. So she read The Hate You Give. And she was like, oh, my God, Angie, was someone like this? <gasps> I knew that was going to be the response. <laughs> classic Haley oh, move. My <laughs> classic Haley. Like, yeah. And she goes, oh, my God, who? And I was like, look in the mirror. So we have not spoken since. Oh, wow. Lord. <laughs> and I'm sure she has texted you. I am so sorry that you felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry you reacted badly. <laughs> The apologies from Haley were just chef's yeah, kiss. Perfect. perfect. Uh, my my mom calls them Apollo lies. Not apologies, Apollo lie. If you Apollo lying, you're not really apologizing. That's a lie. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, is Maya based on someone too? Or Yes, 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 yes. So a lot of my college classmates made their way into the oh book in gosh. some form or fashion. And the funny thing is like, of all the characters in the books, Nobody recognized themselves, but the person who the character of 40 Ounce is based on and 40 Ounce is the neighborhood <laughs> drunk. And like, nobody else recognized themselves except for the neighborhood drunk. That is amazing. Can I ask, was there a Chris? Yes. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's all I will say. Okay. Okay. Um, Chris, no further questions. That Chris was not woke either. That Chris yeah. was in a freaking coma as far as wokeness yeah. goes. <laughs> I like I like that Chris in the book tried to learn and tried to get and tried to know Star. I thought that it was nice yes. that like, okay, there was growth. An yes. attempt was made. Yeah, I yeah. will say I would not encourage any of my homegirls to date Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, but what if what if he looked like hot Archie, Karama? No, no because no. movie movie Chris is worse than book Chris, in my yeah, opinion. Chris is worse. All of the you Chris's know, are bad. Let me just say that character like gave me the most headaches. Like not just as a writer, but even with the film process. Because, yeah. uh, I will talk about it a little bit. But like as a writer, it was hard to write Chris because I've never been a straight, rich, white boy, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. like, I was like, how do I write this? So that, <laughs> per- that character was hard. And then, you know, with the film process, we had to recast the character. Right. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, the original young man who played Chris, um, I won't say his name, um, he's learning and growing, bless his heart, you know. I have nothing against him, but, you know, videos came out. Um, where he had been using the N-word and stuff like that and making racist jokes. And we had just finished filming the movie and had to recast the character, reshoot the scenes. Amanda had to go through, because the scenes with Chris are all hard scenes. Yeah. So Amanda had to go through that again with um, wow. with uh, KJ and all that. So it was just like, it was hard. So I have to admit, like the process with Chris in the book and in the film was just so much hardship so hard and so much trauma for me that that's why you do not see any white boys in on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are enough. The, yeah. the white boys can get roles in other movies. They'll be fine. They've been covered in other books, too. 
Yeah. <laughs> can, can I ask, uh, Angie, what you're reading this summer? Ooh, what am I reading? Um, I, let's see, I just finished a book, Grown by Tiffany D. Jackson. Mm. I'm going to shout about that book from beginning to end. Um, it is about a young Black girl who has dreams of being a singer. Mm-hmm. And this superstar R&B singer takes her under his wing and it becomes some really dark stuff happening. And it's really about, it's loosely based on the R. Kelly stuff. Hmm. Wow. So, but what Tiffany does is she shows us the ways in which Black girls and their innocence is often stolen and the ways in which we as people um, even take that from them in our heads ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like she plays a whole mind game with the reader in this book Mm -hmm. and you're going to put it down. And once you put that book down, you're going to end up checking yourself on some things. I kid you not. So like Mm -hmm. grown by Tiffany D Jackson, read it, read it, read it, absorb it. Mm -hmm. I'm still thinking about that book. Thank you. I feel like that maybe is a, is a good place to end on, but I did have, uh, one question, is there a quote, because you've obviously been promoting this book for such a long time and talking about the hate you give. Is there one question that you never want to answer again that you just want to say, like, please do not ask me? <laughs> because I'm always, people have to do so many interviews and so many Q&As. Is there something you are super tired of? Um, Let's see. The one question that I think I am tired of is, so what do you want white people to take from this book? Oh. <laughs> the book? Yeah. Like, Read I don't know it. if yeah. I was supposed to answer Read, that. Yeah. Here's the thing. It's like, that's not my job. No. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think that's the one question that, like, if nobody ever asks me that again, I would be mm-hmm. totally fine. You wrote a whole mm-hmm. book. Just read the book. Exactly. <laughs> whatever they take from it is whatever they take oh, from it. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid for you that people will continue to ask that question about oh, all yeah. your books. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My mom always has this quote from Toni Morrison that she likes to give where somebody, somebody in an interview asked Toni Morrison, if you could sum this book up into one sentence, what would you say about it? And she's like, well, I wrote the whole book. I, so I didn't have to write a sentence. Like I wrote a whole book. Yes. Yes. Um, I know that we are running out of time and we want to thank you so much for coming. But I also do want to address something that we have been very um, argumentative about uh, the mac and cheese debate. (laughs) (laughs) The mac and cheese. I am on the side of mac and cheese as a side dish. You do not put breadcrumbs on it and you bake it in the oven. Okay. Team, Team side dish, oven. Throw in some breadcrumbs. Add some Why bread. would you do that? Texture. Why? Texture. <laughs> it's a hat on okay. a hat. Okay. But if you do the cheese right, you don't need the breadcrumbs for texture. Mm-hmm. Like the best mac and cheese has like that cheesy crust on top. Mm-hmm. Like yes. you don't need breadcrumbs. Like Mm-mm. you won't want breadcrumbs. You won't miss breadcrumbs. <laughs> Yeah. So, All right. I no, gotta try. I gotta try better mac and cheese. I think you do. gotta do it right. You do. I told them to try Patty Labelle's over the rainbow mac and cheese recipe. Yes, <laughs> that's my go-to. That's my go-to recipe at Thanksgiving. Like I only. Mm-hmm. Here's the yes. thing. Only make you it can, once a year because otherwise like, you will die. You will die. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it no more than that. 
because <laughs> you you won't be moving. You will be so lethargic. No, it's a once a year thing. Patty Labelle over the rainbow mac and cheese. Like okay. you will not want a breadcrumb near it. <laughs> right. You won't. All right. Next time you're in LA, next time you're in LA and all of this pandemic is over, we will get together and I will work my ass off and make that perfect mac and cheese. I promise. (laughs) Good deal. That's our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dana Schwartz and you can find me on Twitter at Dana Schwartz with three Z's. You can follow Jennifer Wright at Jen Ashley Wright. Karama Dankwa is at Karama Drama. Melissa Hunter is at Melissa FTW. And Tian Tran is smart enough to have gotten off Twitter, but she is on Insta at Hank Tina. Our executive producer is Christopher Hesiotis, and we're produced and edited by Mike Johns. Special thanks to David Wasserman. Next week, we are going back to Lovecraft Country. The television series is out now on HBO and Popcorn Book Club is diving back in to talk about the changes they made from the book to the TV show, what we think of the TV show as a whole. There are CGI monsters aplenty. We have plenty to talk about. Can't wait to see you there. Popcorn Book Club is a production of iHeartRadio. See you next week. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.